I'm going to read Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. In 2011, the actor Charlie Sheen was having some difficult trials, we'll put it that way. He was cut from his show, Two and a Half Men. He was one of the highest paid actors at the time in 2010. He was having some personal problems, of which included substance abuse and personal relationships. His wife divorced him and took full custody of his children. The, the police came and removed the children from his home. And that is when you may have started seeing some memes of Charlie Sheen. In several interviews and on social media, he seemed to be losing it. And he pronounced that whatever it takes, he was, quote, maybe you can tell me. No? Winning. He was winning. No matter what it took, he was winning. And so it became a meme, and it, it was pretty funny, but also very sad. And one, uh, in one interview, the interviewer, suggested some would say that you're actually defeated now. You're not winning. To which Sheen replied, well, they can say that, but what kind of car are they driving? What kind of girls are in their home? It's silly, but also very sad, is it not? Well, let me ask you, what is winning for you? What does victory look like for you? What does it mean to have success in this life to overcome your own enemies or obstacles? A related question, of course, is what or who are your enemies? What are you struggling against in this life? And some might think of it in terms of poverty. Maybe poverty is their enemy and they'll do whatever it takes in this life to pursue wealth and become wealthy so that they can overcome poverty. Or perhaps boredom is the enemy. For some, their enemy is anyone who gets in the way of their own happiness. Really, to identify what someone thinks is their greatest enemy, you just have to look at what they are pursuing with the most zeal. What are they pursuing? And that's what they think the opposite. That's what their enemy is. So what are you pursuing? There maybe you can identify what you think is your greatest enemy. Well, I got the chance to listen to Tracy's sermon from last week on Psalms 87 to 89, and he identified well that which is our greatest enemy. Death itself. Strip everything else away, and on one's deathbed, it becomes clear that this is the final and ultimate enemy. 
Paul says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters in Christ, your ultimate enemies are sin and Satan and death. It's not that you're going to be poor. It's not that you're not going to have what you want in this age, in this life. And if you are not in Christ, friends, if you are here this morning and you are not in Christ, spiritual death is your greatest enemy. We could say God is your greatest enemy. And no other struggle in this life will matter if you stand against the exalted king over all the universe. Our focus this morning will be on Psalm 110, but we'll actually be considering several psalms together. So we'll be considering Psalms 107, 108, 109, and 110. And the reason for this is that Psalm 107 is the introduction to book 5 of the psalms. Interestingly enough, Psalm 106 is a litany of Israel's rebellious acts against the Lord and how he delivered them anyway. Not for their own sake, but it repeats, for his own sake, for his own name's sake. And the psalm ends with the prayer to God in verse 47. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Psalm 107, look at that. Uh, psalm it picks up from that same theme with a call to the redeemed of the lord who have been gathered out from the nations to give thanks to the lord for his steadfast love look at psalm 107 1 through 3 oh give thanks to the lord for he is good his steadfast love his faithful love endures forever let the redeemed of the lord say so whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. And notice throughout the rest of this psalm, we have a litany of how God has saved a people for himself out of a variety of circumstances. Look in verse 4. Some wandered in the desert waste, finding no way uh, to a city to dwell in. And verse 10, some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God. And verse 17, some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. And then verse 23, some went down into the sea in ships doing business on great waters and they faced a great storm. But in each of these circumstances, and you can go back through Psalm 107 and see this yourself in verses 6, 13, 19, and 29, quote, they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. And also in each of these cases, there is this refrain, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. There's that that word again, for his faithful love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Psalm 107 ends with the words, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, then maybe we ought to consider the faithful love of the Lord. It would be good for us, perhaps, as a church to regularly hear one another's stories of God's faithful love to us, how he has saved us, from what circumstances he has saved us. Haven't you been filled with joy when you hear the the story of a brother or sister? It may be radically different from your own, and you're, you're filled with joy at hearing how God has redeemed a people for himself. 
out of a variety of circumstances, people who are radically different from one another, who have different skin color, different cultures, different background, different languages, let the redeemed of the Lord praise God for his steadfast love. Have you told your story lately to someone? Have you heard a brother or sister's story lately? Maybe that could be an encouragement for you this week. Get together with a brother or sister over coffee and swap stories and let it redound to the praise of our great God. Psalm 108 is the first of three psalms in which we have this superscription, a psalm of David. You notice that superscription. That's at the beginning of the verse, before verse 1 actually. So already with this inscription we're thinking of King David and we're thinking of the covenant that God had made with David in 2 Samuel 7. I know Tracy mentioned it last week and we'll look at it again in a moment. Notice that in these first four verses David is doing exactly what was commanded in Psalm 107. He's giving thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love and faithfulness. Verses 3 and 4. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. David prays that God would be exalted. Be exalted, God. Answer my prayers and deliver your people. The reason David expects God will answer is in verses 7 through 9. That's the promise of God. This is particularly related to the land. God's, God promises in His hol- holiness that certain pieces of land belong to Him and to His people. Verses 7 through 9. But notice the problem in verse 10. There's a question in verse 10. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? In other words, who will lead me in victory, who will lead us in victory to obtain this promise, to obtain these promises. The problem in question of verse 10 is compounded by the problem of verse 11. Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies. Have you ever experienced something like that? Feeling rejected by God? You know God is your only hope. You know nothing you do can change anything. You know without Him nothing will change. You know if anything is going to happen, it will only be because of the Lord. But it seems like He is absent. Silent. It seems like He's rejected you. What do you do in that situation? What, what do you do in the midst of what feels like hopelessness? Maybe you drown it out with food or drink or medication or some sin, some sin of self-gratification. You just drown it out. You drown the hopelessness out because you can't stand it. Or maybe you drive yourself to distraction. We have a lot of ways to distract ourselves, don't we? You just whip out your iPhone. You don't have to think about your hopelessness. You don't have to think about any difficulties or enemies. Maybe you address your hopelessness with a renewed sense of self-sufficiency and reliance. You pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and you will do it. If God's not going to do anything, you will do it yourself. 
you take charge of the situation with your own personal willpower and fortitude. Well, David knows that that's not going to work. He knows that, as he says, the salvation of man, it is worthless. Vain is the salvation of man. He's facing rejection and hopelessness, but in the midst of hopelessness, there is this ray of hope expressed in a prayer by David. You see it there. Oh, grant us help against the foe. For vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. So then, the psalm ends with a bit of hope. A bit of hope. With God, anything is possible. With God, we will surely have victory, but, but, but God has rejected us. He does not go out with us in battle. The key for David and God's people in battle, winning or losing, always hinged on the presence of God. If God was not with them, they would certainly lose, but if God was with them, they could not possibly lose. But notice David's plea continues into Psalm 109. Not only is he rejected by God, but now, and God is silent, now his enemies surround him with lies and deceit, with hatred. David is innocent, and yet he receives evil for good and hatred for his love. And what is David's response to this seemingly hopeless situation? Verse 4, I give myself to prayer. Literally, you could say, but I myself am prayer. And we may think, oh, how sweet a man after God's own heart giving himself to prayer in the midst of hopelessness. But if we read Psalm 109, we might be a little bit shocked at what he prays. Listen to a few of the prayers, excerpts from Psalm 109, these prayers that he makes against his enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. You must keep in mind, of course, that these are poetic verses and he is not wishing evil on innocent people. David is praying, ultimately, for justice against God's enemies and against the enemies of his anointed. He's praying the enemy would receive justice for what he's done. This is one who has pursued and put to death the poor and needy and brokenhearted. May all these things happen to him, my enemy, but verse 21, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because of your steadfast love, because it is good, deliver me. There's that word again, God's faithful love, reminding us of God's covenant faithfulness. God does two things, and he never does them without one on each other. He makes promises, and then he keeps promises. In fact, let's take a moment. Turn back with me to this promise that God made David in 2 Samuel 7. Let's look at 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 16. 2 Samuel 7, 
11 through 16. The Lord says through the prophet Nathan, And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So when we read these words in Psalm 109, we read it as describing David, the king. But we also might legitimately read them as describing the one, this ancestor of David, to whom God has promised a kingdom, this anointed one of God, David's greater son, the Messiah, who would come. Look at verses 21 through 25 of Psalm 109. But you, O Lord, O God, my Lord, deal on behalf for your name's deal for me, deal on my behalf for your namesake. Because of your steadfast love is good, deliver me, for I am poor and needy. My heart is pierced or wounded within me. I am going away like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees stumble from fasting. My flesh is going lean of fat. I myself am a reproach to them. They see me and they shake their heads. And as God's anointed, our Messiah, Jesus, suffered just like this. The deceiver Judas handed him over to the Roman authorities where he was wrongly accused. He, he was fading away like a shadow at evening. You can imagine him stumbling as he bore the cross. His body gaunt from suffering. He was reproached by his enemies who wagged their heads at him. You saved others. Can you not save yourself? And isn't it interesting that Jesus died because of our sins, brothers and sisters, and for our sins. And yet it is exactly by his death that we are healed from our sins, that we are saved from our sins. So the anointed one in Psalm 109 calls out, Help me, O Lord, my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand, O Lord. You have done it. And look to it, verses 30 and 31. With my mouth I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise Him in the midst of the throng, for He stands at the right hand of the needy one to save Him from those who condemn His soul to death. The anointed one is being condemned to death, but he is trusting in the Lord to save him, to stand at His right hand in His time of need. We turn then to the final psalm of David in this grouping, Psalm 110. And I want to contend that it is an answer of sorts. First, Psalm 110 is an answer to the question given in Psalm 108.10. Who will bring us into the fortified city? Who will lead us to Edom? 
In other words, who will give us victory and fulfill God's promises for us? And second, Psalm 110 is an answer to the anointed one's prayer in Psalm 109. Namely, for his enemies to be destroyed and for deliverance from death. In verse 1, notice it's David who is speaking. The Lord says to my Lord. This is a prophetic utterance of Yahweh to David's Lord or Master, right? The Lord says to my Lord. So David's aware of God's covenant with him that his son, his descendant, would have an eternal throne, would be a son of Yahweh, and would never lose the faithful love of the Lord. This offspring of David then is David's son, is also David's Lord. You remember how the Pharisees were startled at this teaching of Jesus from Matthew twenty-two forty-one through 46. You remember the Pharisees were gathered together and Jesus asked them a question, Who is, whose son is the Christ? Whose son is the Messiah? And they said, he's the son of David. And he said to them, well, how then is it that David from Psalm 110 in the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. He says, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus' question, if David calls him Lord, how is he David's son. And the answer that it seems like the Pharisees knew, maybe, but refused to admit, was this, he is both the son of David and the Lord of David. But if you admit that he is the Lord of David, well, then you've got to admit that he is not just David's son, but he is something much greater than even the greatest king of all of Israel. Maybe even the Lord himself. And that is exactly who Jesus claimed to be. So the, the utterance, the promise, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And this is in answer to the prayers of Psalm 109 and the affirmation that Yahweh stands at the right hand of the needy one. He is no longer the needy one, though. He is the Lord who sits at the right hand of God and whose foot will be on the neck of his enemies. This is not just a rule over the a little city or the lands of promise, the Lord sends forth His mighty scepter from Zion, ruling not only over those who willingly come, but even those who resist His rule. Reign in the midst of your enemies. The answer then to the questions, who will give us victory, to whom should we look, is this. Look to this exalted King. He is the son of David. He's the everlasting king. He will have complete victory over his enemies. Look to him and be saved. But this was also an answer to the prayer of the anointed one himself. The prayer in Psalm 109 was to deliver him from his enemies. And Yahweh had done so, but not before he was condemned to death first. What we have in Psalm 110 is the ex exaltation of of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He died and then he rose for it was not possible for death to defeat him. And so in this way, he overcame the greatest enemy of all, death itself, as we confess each month in the Lord's Supper. He was crucified, dead, and buried on the third day. He rose again from the dead and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. 
Or consider what Peter preached after the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost in Acts 2. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is why we look to Jesus, our exalted King, who sits at the right hand of God. He rules his kingdom from heaven, and he has poured out his Spirit upon us and made us his children. So the ascension and exaltation of our Messiah after his sacrificial death for us has resulted in you, Christian, being filled and indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God himself. It seems it couldn't get any better than this, but there is a bit more. There is a second utterance in verse 4, and this is heightened by a solemn oath that God makes. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the distinctive and surprising part of this psalm is not merely that the Messiah is the son of David and the everlasting king. We have that in some other psalms, right? Psalm 2 and 72, which we have seen already in this series. The surprising aspect of this psalm is that the son of David, the anointed one of God, is not only a king, but also a priest, a priest king. Note what is different about this priest from the other priests of the Old Testament. First, he is different than the others in the extent of his priesthood. You are a priest forever. It extends forever. And second, this priest is of a different order than the Levitical priests. He is a priest king, a king priest just like Melchizedek from Genesis 14. And the author of Hebrews preaches on the supremacy of Christ. He preaches Christ is superior to angels. He is superior to Moses. He is superior to Joshua. He is superior to the Old Testament priests. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 5 and look at verses 7 through 10. Hebrews 5, 7 through 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. By being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews continues preaching about Jesus, the great high priest, and how he is supreme over all the other Old Testament shadows and pictures. I would love if I could read a lot of it to you, but instead let me summarize it to you. As our great high priest Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. He holds his priesthood permanently, so he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Our great high priest Jesus offers better sacrifices. He never needed to offer sacrifices for himself and then for the people. 
but he offered up himself as the sacrifice once and for all. And the author of Hebrews says, And when he had done this, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. As our great high priest, Jesus has a better ministry. He brings us not into the temple made by hands, but into the very presence of the Lord Almighty. He has fulfilled the promise of David, not only of having an eternal throne, but of building a house for the Lord. He has built a temple for the Lord. The covenant which Jesus has inaugurated was not like the one with Moses who brought down the stone tablets of the law and said, do this and live. But the author of Hebrews says, the Holy Spirit witnesses to us saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds and I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. The promise of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. Well, how do we respond to these things, brothers and sisters? These great truths of this king priest who is highly exalted. Let me give you an application from the author of Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Jesus, by his death on the cross, has dealt the death blow to Satan and to our enemy as well, Satan and death. Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven where the Father has exalted him at the right hand. He is our mediator, our intercessor, He has poured out the gift of His Spirit upon His people, making our hearts new, enabling us to now live for His glory. And He is presently reigning at the right hand of the Father, awaiting the time when all His enemies will become His footstool. It is by this exalted king-priest that we have victory. Victory for God's people is the kingdom of God coming down. Verses 5 through 11 show us a picture of that day which is to come when God and His anointed will usher in the kingdom of God once and for all. It is not a pretty picture, is it, for those who are enemies of God. He will crush the kings of this world. He will crush them. He will shatter them. Literally says He will crush the heads of nations, that, that bodies will be in the nations. It's frightening. But for those who are his people, it is the day of our victory over this great enemy of ours. He will defeat your sin completely, once and for all. He will defeat every ounce of temptation, and it will be no more. 
He will defeat disease and sorrow. He will defeat every rebellion against Him. He will defeat Satan himself and all his demons, and He will defeat the last enemy. As Tracy preached last week, the enemy whose stench is about us in our daily life, day in and day out, death and its effects, the exalted King Priest Jesus will defeat death and it will not be anymore. So we say with the psalmist of Psalm 107, let us thank the Lord for His steadfast love. For wondrous are His works to the children of man. Let us pray together.